community, and there was a gym on State Street called New Way Boxing Gym. So did you actually box? I did, yeah. So I, I didn't box professionally. I didn't box as an amateur, but my grandfather would let me go get my butt kicked by the boxers. He was coaching wow. on a frequent basis. So. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that will help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Well, Mike, this week's guest uh, was uh, David DeSalt, who was an interesting background, uh, started first working at General Electric in one of their manufacturing facilities, and then decided to leave and start his own business, and his first customer was actually GE. I thought that was a real interesting part of his story. Uh, what struck you, Mike? Bela, I agree this was an interesting guest, and I really found this leap from corporate into the world of entrepreneurship to be fascinating. I think it's something that a lot of people talk about and not a lot of people do, so I think it fits the the context of finding a road less traveled. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. I've known Dave for a number of years, and he's a fascinating guy. And I, I really knew that we had to get him to be one of our guests uh, because he really has a great story. And I think the other part that uh, really struck me was the way in which he talked about culture and the points he made about the culture that they build and have in his business and how he needs to scale his culture. So I think it's a great opportunity for us to uh, learn from someone who has really been very successful and has built a great business uh, in a non-traditional field. And what I mean by that is you think of most entrepreneurs as going into high tech, where he really has gone into machining metal parts, kind of a tried and true uh, tradesman, craftsman type of business and has done very well. There's opportunities everywhere, Bela. Let's, uh, let's start the conversation and see what Dave's got to say. Okay, so let's uh, get right into the interview with Dave. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz, and I'm here today at uh, the headquarters of P1 Industries. 
Uh, P1 Industries is a uh, local Schenectady company um, that has really made a mark in the industry they're in. And the industry they're in is in the high-tech contract manufacturing for the likes of General Electric, Siemens, and many large company names that you would recognize. Today, our guest is David DeSalt, who is the founder um, and CEO of this company. And today, we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, speaking to David and his path uh, in building the company and actually starting before his company uh, was created. So, David, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, the journey that you've had that has brought you here, particularly the early part of that journey. Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm one of seven children. Uh, my great-grandfather moved here in 1908. Uh, he was actually a GE employee. Uh, he was a machinist, um, and, and my other great-grandfather as well worked at General Electric and Alcoa. Uh, that, you know, so we have four generations of GE people uh, in this community. So we have, we're pretty embedded. Uh, seven children uh, grew up relatively poor. Uh, my father was a pretty hardworking guy. He was a factory employee at GE, uh, 38 years, just retired last year actually. Um, and I went to Mahanasan High School, uh, was an athlete in high school, played football, played basketball, ran track, did that kind of thing. And then uh, I wanted to stay local. So when I was coming out of high school, uh, interestingly, I had a love for Schenectady, which a lot of people can't say. Uh, my grandfather uh, was an avid boxing coach in the community, and there was a gym on State Street called New Way Boxing Gym. So did you actually box? I did, yeah. So I, I didn't box professionally. I didn't box as an amateur, but my grandfather would let me go get my butt kicked by the boxers he was coaching wow. on a frequent basis. So I became a pretty good sparring partner. And what age was this? So I started about 13 years old. And I took it right through high school, and uh, we used to go, it was on the fourth floor in the old uh, Center City, kind of where that is now, uh-huh. and uh, we used to go there uh, three, four days a week, and so I fell in love with the city. You know, my, my grandfather taught me to love um, boxing, Schenectady, uh, I had a great love for General Electric, and you know, kind of the, the legacy that I had in my family. Right. So uh, I, I had to fight my way to get into Union College. Uh, it's funny, I was with an old roommate last night, actually, and he was talking about how Union College was a safety school. And for me, it was my stretch school. I wasn't the greatest student in high school. I, was, uh, I didn't take it as seriously as I do now in terms of yes. loving learning and so forth. So I uh, went to Union College, fought my way to get in there, uh, spent four years there. Matter of fact, when I was at Union, I was an American history major. I wanted to be a professor. My life dream was to be uh, Indiana Jones mm-hmm. and to go around discovering amazing things and going on these different adventures. And in my junior year, my father said to me, he says, you know, Dave, being a history professor is not the easiest thing in the world, and you're probably not going to get a local job. Uh, so I recommend you change your major to, or you know, add your major into economics, which I did. Uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, I had an internship at uh, General Electric. Uh, you know, surprise, surprise, and uh, that kind of changed the course of my personal and professional life uh, because I fell in love with business. I had no idea I wanted to be a business person up to this juncture. Uh, to me, you know, the, the, the last kind of linkage I had or understanding of business was Michael J. Fox's movie, The Secret to My Success. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so I started working at GE, and I absolutely fell in love with business. Um, and I was able to kind of fight my way to get onto their operations management leadership program, which is interesting because in order to get on the OMLP, which is a two-year training program at GE, you need to have an engineering degree with a 4.0 from one of the top 10 engineering schools and actually had a list of schools. Yes. I was a 3.1 economics major from Union College. So I met zero elements of, of kind of the threshold for entry. And, and I spent about six months really networking and building relationships with key people so I could get onto that program, uh, which, uh, which I did. So fast forward, uh, I spent uh, six years at General Electric, um, started my MBA at Union Graduate College in 2002. Uh, GE was paying for that as part of my further development. And um, 
but you know, and I fell in love with business and I fell in love with entrepreneurship while I was at GE. GE did something very, very uh, interesting. They taught us how to do two things. They said, we're going to teach you how to work yourself out of a job, right? So that means continual improvement and every two to three years you're moving up in the, in the company. And then the second thing we're going to teach you is how to be an entrepreneur within a large corporation. And, uh, and then I fell in love with entrepreneurship. So that's my personal story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I married uh, very young at 23 years old, uh, my college sweetheart. And uh, today we have three children and she's due our fourth in about six weeks. Oh, wow. Really Congratulations. So. so tell us a little bit about what uh, P1 Industries does. Sure. So you know, P1 Industries, different from when I first started it today, uh, I was trying to really come up with a phrase and to kind of describe what we do. And it's simple. We're industrial entrepreneurs. We love operating the industrial world, and over the last eight years, we've built three operating companies, uh, manufacturing businesses that incorporate high-tech machining, fabrication, a lot of engineering work in terms of change, you know, turning our customers' uh, end product design, specifically for power generation and oil and gas applications, into sustainable manufacturing processes so we can uh, build products with them uh, on a recurring basis with high quality and good cost. Uh, so, so we started the businesses from the ground up. Matter of fact, when I, when I first went to a couple of my friends and said, I'm going to start an industrial manufacturing company from scratch, uh, they thought I was nuts. Yeah. They said, who starts manufacturing companies? You've got to start a computer company or a software company or a tech company. Um, but it began with a simple vision of, and, uh, and I'll kind of explain it this way. When I was at GE, there were multi-generational manufacturing companies servicing GE. And uh, they had a lot of things in common. Number one, they had a sense of entitlement. They lacked customer service in a very serious way. Um, and I thought that being a multi-generational company, they didn't have the same kind of innovative spirit and passion and desire to be in the business that they were in. So I literally had a dream to start a manufacturing business to kind of disrupt that lethargic kind of multi-generational company effort or issue with regard to GE. Right. And so today we're an industrial entrepreneurial company that starts and builds uh, advanced manufacturing businesses in the power generation oil and gas business. Uh, where we can add a ton of value from a customer service perspective. Can you give me an example of a product? That, uh, yeah, so, so um, we do a lot of work for oil and gas companies where they'll build risers. And risers are a fancy way of saying they build these large kind of bolt-on systems that go into the ocean to drill oil out of the bottom of the ocean um, and to kind of compress it and move it up these risers so they can get it into refineries on land so they can be distributed uh, after it's been refined. So we will build a lot of the rotating components that go into compressors, which is a fancy thing for saying it just kind of turns and pumps a liquid from one spot to the next. Uh, And a lot of the applications that we work with are in kind of those types of environments, ocean environments, um, desert environments where they're looking for uh, for oil or areas where they're pumping natural gas or using fracking. Uh, So we'll do a lot of the kind of sealing equipment for those compressors. And we also do a lot of work uh, in the power generation business where we make a lot of the sealing technology for gas turbines, uh, steam turbines, and also uh, generators. So how does a young upstart company with relatively no history convince uh, an oil company or some other large company to say, hey, buy products from us? This was the biggest challenge we had. Uh, I was 28 years old. And when I went to GE at first, and they said to me, they said, whoa, hold on a second. You're 28, you have no operating history as a, as a standalone company, 
Um, so this is after you left GE. This is after I left you GE. went back to GE and tried to get them as a customer. That's right. So so I was really really innovative. I left the company and I wanted to be my first customer. So I figured fourth generation GE employee might as well make them my boss all around. So I wanted to be my biggest customer. So I went back to them. I said I, I really want to disrupt the customer service model. And it was a tough sell. I mean, they, they kind of looked at me and said, you know, we've had we had these multi generational companies that have been in business for sixty plus years. Uh, not much disruption to the supply chain, you know, pretty reliable um, qualities there. You know, why are we going to give you a shot? And so I, I, I kind of made a big bet with them. I said, look, I worked at the company. I worked at GE. I ran a small plant for you guys. Um, I know you lose a lot of parts, right? Parts are coming from suppliers around the world. They come in on pallets. They're in cardboard boxes. I said, let me solve that issue for you. And they said, well, how are you going to solve it? I said, Instead of placing 40 purchase orders on 40 different suppliers and bringing all these parts in at the spare times and so forth, place one order on me and I'll go buy it from your qualified suppliers. I'll buy those, I'll bring it in, I'll inspect it, I'll inventory it, and I'll design a way to deliver to you as you need it because I'm right down the road. And I said, there's no risk to you. I'm going to buy from the exact same suppliers. You trust me enough as you train me through the OMLP program to be able to make purchasing, you know, kind of, you know, manage your product for you. And you can kind of oversee the whole process. And they bought into it. Okay. You know, about six weeks later, I had a million-dollar purchase order, and, uh, and, and we started. That's how we got started. And that notion for you, the idea of your company buying the products and kidding them and delivering to GE, was the foundation for that idea from your experience when you worked at GE and you saw how much work and, and pain in the butt it was to go and do all those purchase orders? Yeah, uh, you know, we, we took lean manufacturing very serious. And one of the tenets of lean manufacturing is visual inventory management, you know, kind of just in time, tack, you know, tack time management in terms of products showing up just in time to be assembled yes. as a finished product. So I knew that that was a big initiative GE was uh, you know, undertaking. They were training, spent a lot of money on that. So I kind of took that tack when I went back in and said, look, I can help you solve an issue using lean uh, methodologies. So today, it's a number of years later, you're growing, you're successful. So what are the biggest challenges today? Oh, um, two things, people and growth. So growing in the first couple of years of the business was easy, right? You start with nothing. Uh, we went on a 68% growth rate over the course of like six years in a row. And we just took the business from zero to we're approaching $20 million in revenue this year. And, you know, and that's expensive growth. I mean, you're buying equipment, facilities, hiring people, buying inventory. And, you know, we're actually going through the process right now saying, what does this company look like five years from now? Because, you know, for every million in revenue we want to generate, we're going to spend about a quarter million in equipment and facilities and inventory. So that becomes a very, you kind of reach this threshold where you can't take on too much more debt. Um, you know, you, you don't want to have a ton more overhead because, mm -hmm. you know, in case there's a, a blip in the, in, in, the, uh, in the supply chain. So right now we're trying to figure out how do we grow a capital intensive business in a very archaic industry? What can we do to innovate and, and, and kind of get this thing stimulated to keep growing in the right direction? That's the biggest challenge we have right now. And then finding the people to be able to make that happen. Um, you know, in our trade, in our business, we rely very heavily on extremely talented people who work with their hands, who have great technical discipline and mechanical dexterity. And that's very hard to find today. You know, we've always had good luck hiring uh, farmers. Mm -hmm. You know, people have very, very good uh, background in mechanical equipment uh, maintenance and so forth. But that's quickly diminishing. And we're trying to figure out how do we keep finding the right people, getting them on board, and then actually come up with a growth plan that, uh, that stimulates growth for the future. Right. So one of the things that I hear when I speak to people who work at various different companies is, is they say, I really love working there. And, and when you talk to them, it, you, you learn that it comes down to the culture or sure. the feeling or the atmosphere of the company. 
And, and certainly when I walk around here at your headquarters, uh, the building itself kind of vibrates a certain culture, sure. right? It sends a certain message. Um, how do you think about culture and how, how do you cultivate that culture and how, and how do you sort of keep it going? Sure. Culture is by far the most important thing we do. As CEO of the company uh, over the last 12 months, I've made the determination that I have to make sure we can scale our culture. When we first started the business, our culture was built on performance. 28 years old, upstart in this community or this industry. Um, we had to prove ourselves, we had to perform, and we had to perform flawlessly. We had to make sure we deliver perfect product. We had to make sure we delivered with uh, unbelievable amounts of customer service. So our, our culture really kind of formed around this, this, this desire to do something that hasn't been done in a very long time in our industry and that we needed to execute and perform at a level that uh, is just far superior to our competitors so we could have our large customers trust young people trying to enter this multi-generational industry in terms of supply base. Um, the culture has transitioned a lot. Uh, it's transitioned quite a bit, actually. And one of the things we focus on right now is trying to have every single employee be a customer-focused or customer-facing person. And it's interesting, I did an orientation two days ago with all new employees. We had about seven people in the orientation. And we run orientation every six months. And the first thing I talk about is I draw a big box on the board and I say, this is you inside this box. And around you are customers on every single surface outside of you, influencing you, and someone you interact with every day. There's internal and external customers. And that's been the crusade we've been on for the last two years, is making sure every employee from the newest machinist all the way to the top leaders on the leadership team, knowing that we have internal and external customers that absolutely primary or paramount to anything we do. Yes. And that culture, if we, can, if we can cultivate that culture, then that culture will invade everything our employees do to make sure they take it very seriously. Um, on top of that, and I know I'm talking quite a bit about this, but culture is so important. Yes. On top of that, we have cultivated a culture of transparency and uh, what I call treating people like adults. And in our manufacturing plants, if you look at most manufacturing plants, uh, very strict schedules, um, you know, first shift starts X, ends X. Punch o'clock. Punch o'clock. We have flex work hours for every employee in the business, including our machinists. And one of the, you know, building on the performance culture and understand that we're customer facing, we have employees that will literally bleed the company, uh, you know, to make sure we service our customers and that they perform and deliver perfect products. That's invaded our culture. Mm -hmm. So we said we're going to come away with any structure, which was radical. You know, especially where you have to, you know, you have to rely on machine hours, utilization, right. and everything else. And we, we, I say, I want to treat others as I deserve to be treated. I don't want someone looking over my shoulder telling me I got to punch in and punch out. So we've treated machinists exactly the same way. And our average revenue per employee is about four hundred thirty-five thousand a year, which is about three times the average in our industry. Wow. And we haven't missed a delivery. We haven't had a qual major quality issue. And uh, that culture of uh, performance. And customer facing has driven the values of our business exceptionally well over the last couple of years. Excellent. So one of the things you said early on was that uh, you got some good advice from your father about being a history major. <laughs> uh, what role have other uh, people played in, in kind of helping you develop your career and, and maybe mentoring you? Sure. Well, my father was my first mentor. Uh, I always talk about him because he would always have those tough conversations with me. Um, when I first left GE, when I first resigned, uh, I thought my father was going to be quite disappointed. And he kind of put his arm around me and says, Dave, you've always been a survivor. You know, you've always just kind of made things happen and, and, and kind of did those, that stuff. So he encouraged me. He says, you know, leave. Go do your thing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, do what you have to do. And if you fall, you fall. And I'll be here to catch you. So my father was my first kind of encouragement, my first mentor in life. 
Um, I've had several other friends, uh, one in particular, who through thick and thin has encouraged me uh, to no end. You know, almost like optimistically, unrealistically encouraged me, which I think is important. You know, you kind of have a vision or a dream to accomplish something in life. And, and this man, he's, he's much older than I am. Uh, he wasn't one of those guys like, oh, have you thought about this? Or, or you, know, you know, these things can fail. You can falter. He just said, no, man, you've got to follow your dreams. You know, if you really want to start a manufacturing business in today's day and age, he goes to go do it. Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, what's the worst that can happen? You fall on your face and you get back up and, and you go off and you do something different or something new. So, I, you know, those two people, my father really encouraged me, had tough conversations with me and, and allowing me the opportunity to fail. And my, uh, and my dear friend, Lorenzo, who actually encouraged me throughout my entire life, mm-hmm. um, adult life, to really take chance and to dream and, and to make sure I was doing things that I wanted to do. Right. So Lorenzo was this friend who really mentored you. That's right. So how do you find a Lorenzo? I mean, how I does think that process work? I think it's hard. I, you, know, it, you know, I often say that uh, it's very hard to find at least two or three people that you can rely on unconditionally. And Lorenzo was just one of those guys where, you know, we met about 14 years ago. Uh, like I said, he was older than me. Uh, we were doing uh, some work in the church, and I was going overseas and doing some, uh, I, I call it missional work, not uh, but missional work in terms of building orphan homes and stuff. So we said shared values. And he's a dreamer. And uh, we just kind of connected and, uh, and just built a relationship. And he's just been one of those guys. I don't go to him for, you know, what should I not do? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> he'd be like, man, you got to dream and do it. But I go to him for the encouragement and the courage that I need in order to uh, to make sure that I can move forward. Right. So, David, let's talk a little bit about strategy. And as you're building your company, you know, how, how, what's the process that goes through your brain uh, about strategy before you sort of talk to employees about it? Sure. So, talk about the internal process yeah. a little bit. You know, we don't have a formal sit-down kind of strategic process. To say this is what we're going to do over the next couple of months in order to kind of formulate a strategy for the future. Uh, but we do have two kind of pillars to our strategic process. Um, the first pillar is talking to customers. Uh, we are always talking to customers. Matter of fact, I have this, whenever I travel, my uh, vice president of sales or one of our customer service leads, you know, they go into the meeting, they talk and they talk and they talk. And, uh, and that's good. You know, they're selling, they're telling the story about the company and everything else. I like to ask questions. And towards the end of the meeting, typically I ask a customer one simple question. Tell us two or three things we're doing really well. And bluntly and honestly tell us two or three things we're doing really bad. Mm-hmm. And usually ends up being one thing we're doing well and 20 things we're doing bad. Um, so that kind of becomes the first data point for strategy, right? Because at the end of the day, the best way to grow your business is with existing customers. And if you can listen to them and understand where they're going, the investments they're making, the things that are challenging for them, that gives us kind of the first data point for strategic yes. development. I think what you said right there is really interesting because I'm often amazed at the amount of time and energy people will put in to acquire a new customer while they totally ignore yeah. their existing customers. That's right. And the growth opportunities are often with your existing That's customers. Right. Yeah, we call it our core and organic growth process. You know, how do we take our core and continue to embed that in our company, make sure our customers continue to come back from those product lines? And how do we organically grow those relationships to get more vertical with them so we can actually service them in different uh, product lines and so forth? The second data point uh, that we really focus on is I like to find companies that are doing things that we want to do or that are in places in their development where we want to be. Mm-hmm. And we do, one of the things I love learning, I love studying, I love researching. Uh, so I'll literally spend a month looking at four, five, six, seven publicly traded companies where I can get a lot of information. I'll study their CEOs, study their management teams, study their strategies, their dynamics, their growth profiles. And, uh, and I do this thing, I map out the growth profile. You know, where do they start? You know, what are the triggers that kind of help them grow? 
And we use that as an update point to really figure out, hey, our customers are telling us X, mm-hmm. you know, these other companies that have been successful and that have, uh, that have you know, achieved kind of where we want to be, they're doing Y. How do we bring those two things together and sprinkle in a little innovation and figure out how to kind of continue disrupting our industry a little bit? Right. So that clearly defines how, how you sort of think about the yes. business, yep. uh, how you think about your company. Uh, how do you convey that message to the employees? I mean, how, how, yeah. do you, how frequently, you know, how do you do that? How do you get people to buy into that vision? Incrementally. So I have a very well-defined process for this. This is where I do have a defined process. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, we're planning the consolidation of our manufacturing plants in early 2015. We've been planning it now for almost a year. Um, huge strategic shift for our company, right? Really going to change the dynamics of integrating personnel that haven't worked together before. Consolidating meaning geographically? Geographically. Pulling two large plants here locally and pulling them to one campus. So we can actually leverage productivities and, and, and put a better look and feel for our customers. It's a big strategic shift from a marketing perspective and also a productivity perspective. And that's a very daunting thing for employees, right? So I take this incremental approach. I have four or five influencers in our business that influence the mass of our 85 employees. Mm-hmm. You know, and whenever I go to any institution, whenever I join a board of anything, I always ask them, who's the most influential person in this organization? Because I want to make friends with that person. So six months ago, even though we were well over a year away from doing anything or making any final decisions, I started talking to the influencers about it. Because the natural inclination is fear. You know, we can't change or protect what we have. What are you doing? Why are we doing these things, David? But it gives me the opportunity to educate them one-on-one. And I've always taken this approach with any major shift or change we've done in our business. We've made radical shifts and changes in our business in the last eight years. But they feel like very natural, slow changes for the influencers because I brought them in very early. And I, 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 it's, it's the meals, having the beer, discussing it, explaining to them why it's important to me and getting them bought in. As I'm getting them bought in incrementally over a long period of time, they're getting everyone else bought in. Right. And by the time we make the formal announcement and we actually start making the physical change, everyone's like, oh, well, what took so long? Mm-hmm. And I, I have to tell you that's something that we as a leadership team have done exceptionally well for the last eight years is taking a naturally um, fearful workforce who typically worry about what the job is in front of them for that day and incrementally bring them along the strategic development path to make sure we can achieve what we do as a company. So clearly employees have played a very important role uh, in building of this business. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about how you do employee hiring. What, what sort of characteristics and traits do you look for and sure. skills do you look for in hiring an employee? We look for entrepreneurs. Um, every one of our machinists with the exception of a small handful, I would group together as probably some of the most innovative entrepreneurs that, that I know uh, in any industry. Uh, we want people that uh, I always call take initiative. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they're resourceful. They understand and know how to solve, solve problems without having to be told exactly what to do. People that can't do those things don't last very long. They leave on their own because they're frustrated. Uh, we work in a very autonomous uh, environment where we want people who can think on their feet. Uh, we actually took an interesting approach to where we can't find qualified machinists anymore. It's just, they don't, it, it, it ends up poaching from one company to the next, and that's not positive for anyone. Yes. So we actually took the approach that we're going to hire very young people, and we're going to put them in mentoring relationships. So we hired this young man, James Wright, uh, about three years ago, 19 years old, never turned on a piece of equipment a day in his life. And we put him on one of our manual machines, which is exceptionally, it's not CNC controlled, it's not software uh, integrated. It's com- com- you have to be a phenomenal machinist. And we put him next to a machinist who was 56 years old who's been doing it for a very long time. And Freddie, uh, I call him the father in the house, is a great teacher and a great mentor. Fast forward three years, this kid is doing amazing. 
And I have about seven to ten of those stories that have been extremely wildly successful. Taking people who have a desire and resourcefulness to want to learn and solve problems, to fit into that value or that culture, and then giving them a mentor and giving them the opportunity to fail. Right? And it's funny because during orientation the other day, I said I've never, ever, ever let go of an employee for making a mistake or failing. We've let go of people for having a bad attitude about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I'll take someone who fails a thousand times, but every single time gets back up and wants to get back in the machine and try it again. And that's something, having mentors that allow them to fail, having that culture allow them to fail. And we've never had an employee quit in eight years. We're up over 85 employees. We're approaching 100 here probably in the next 6 to 12 months. And I've never had an employee quit on any level in this business. And I think it's because of that culture. Right, right. So you're clearly an entrepreneur. At some point in time, you, you got the entrepreneurial juice. Yep. Uh, so where did that come from? What's the foundation for that? Uh, so, sure. Yeah, in 2003... Um, I took a trip to South Africa with Lorenzo. <laughs> and, uh, Lorenzo, your mentor. My mentor. And uh, we uh, spent two weeks building orphan homes in uh, the northwestern uh, or northeastern portion of the country called Nelsport, a city called Nelsport. And it was extremely important. I'd never seen anything like this before. It was my first international trip. Um, I had never knew or understood that people actually lived in such extreme poverty in the world. It, it was just shocking to me. It, it, it literally changed my life. Uh, when I came back from that experience, uh, I tried to figure out a way at a large corporation what I could do to kind of make an impact. And I didn't know. I didn't know what I was going to do, how I could make an impact. But I knew living this one life that we have and seeing how other human beings are living, I had to do something about it. So this kind of uh, born in me an undying passion to start something on my own. So it didn't start with this aha moment, like, I want to be an entrepreneur. You know, GE trained us how to be an entrepreneur in the corporate world. I was perfectly happy in that role. They taught us how to kind of think on our feet and work ourselves out of a job. But I came back saying, I have to do something about this. And what is the path of least resistance? That's an oxymoron when it comes to entrepreneurship. But I, came, I became impassioned about starting my own company so I could then use resources from my company to do it, make an impact. And that began the journey in 2003. It wasn't for another year and a half till I left GE. Uh, and what I left GE to do, I never ended up doing. I wrote this exi- you know, unbelievable business plan. I spent a year and a half doing it. I left and literally threw it on the fire the next day and said, this is not going to work. And I tried figuring out what I was going to do from there. But that was the, that was the born of the, that's where my passion was born. And today we, we build schools in Africa. We give almost 10% of our profitability to uh, educational initiative, entrepreneurial initiatives in Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe, and uh, in Connecticut. Excellent. Well, Dave, it's been a wonderful visit. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your experiences and the, and the great business you've built here in Connecticut. Thank you. Bela, that was great. Let's talk for a second about this idea of launching into a space that isn't sexy, that isn't high tech, that isn't necessarily uh, something that's red hot on the cover of all the business magazines. But, you know, Dave's story about getting into machining is fascinating. What's your take on finding entrepreneurial opportunities in areas that might be underserved or not served uh, or maybe they were formerly served by a, by a player and there's, and there's space there. Is this a good idea for entrepreneurs to explore? I actually think it's a great opportunity uh, to explore those types of areas. You know, everyone's trying to do the new version of Airbnb or everyone's trying to do the new version of uh, Uber or Lyft. And I think there are segments of the economy, segments of business that are pretty much left alone by individuals. Oftentimes, they're characterized by being 
made up of small independent companies and there has been no real roll-up or aggregation thereof and they're oftentimes family-run businesses. Uh, family-run businesses are great and but they're also a great opportunity sometimes to come in with a performance attitude that David had and I think that he got from working at GE uh, in his early part of his career and really sort of disrupt that industry. And I think that's one of the places where David has been very, very successful. So I actually think it's a great, great uh, segment of the economy to go after and to find these sort of opportunities. So it might be not having a flashy technology. It might be having a strong culture and good management skills and a good network. I mean, what do you think about that? It cuts against sometimes what we teach in business schools about having kind of the the latest and greatest technology. Is there something to this idea of a great culture, building a great culture, having solid knowledge, having a solid network and building a a solid but not sexy business? Yeah, I thought the way in which David talked about culture was interesting. Uh, You know, many times when you hear folks talking about culture, they talk about culture as... uh, Oh, yeah, we get every Friday afternoon off. We have a beer party. We have a pool table in the office. We have big, fancy couches. And, you know, we have free lunch brought in a couple times a week, etc. That's not how Dave talked about culture, right? Dave talked about this is a performance culture. And our culture is built around providing superior customer service uh, to our customers and to basically outperform our competitors. And that's his cultural focus. Uh, and it's, it's built around that, and that drives everything. It, he talked about how it drives the type of people that work there, how it drives the notion that for a machine shop, which is basically what he is, they have flex hours, right? The traditional way that a machine shop is run is you have first shift that runs from, you know, 8 to 4.30, And then if you have a second shift, it runs from, you know, five to three in the morning. And he goes, that's not what we're about. We're not about facing the clock. We're about facing our customers and making sure that we provide good service that's much better than our competitors. And the other interesting thing he's talked both about internal customers and external customers is that in many manufacturing operations, there are multiple sequential steps along the way. And one part of the organization does one of those steps and somebody else in a different part of the organization does the step that follows. And that so you're really customers to each other there. And I thought that was interesting as well. Bela, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, Dave's had a fascinating approach to culture and to performance management and to customer focus. And it really gets me thinking. I mean, you and I have talked a lot with young people 18, 20, 22, 24 years old, maybe finishing their bachelor's degree or just out of bachelor's or coming out of the military or what have you, really wanting to be entrepreneurs, to to create an awesome organization, make some money, uh, be their own boss. Um, but reflecting on what Dave said and what you just said, it really strikes me that, you know, there may be a different path to get there, which is spending two, three, four years at a high performing organization that has a strong culture that you can learn from, that has a performance orientation. You can learn how people measure performance and how people work with their their subordinates to perform at a higher level. Um, a customer focus, how do you, do you drill that into your employees every day? 
Uh, to me, those are lessons that if you're learning them on the fly as an entrepreneur, there can be some really difficult lessons there. And for a young person, especially to walk into a organization that has all that, that can teach you that in a in a fairly benign way, um, that gives you that inner knowledge that we saw Dave demonstrate uh, that allow you to go on maybe four, five, six years out um, and, and start your own company, but with that solid core of knowledge. Have you seen that, Bella, or does that make sense to you, or am I completely out of my mind as, as usual? Well, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, you know, I've, I look back on my own career. Uh, when I got out of graduate school, I, I went to work at GE Research, and I've always thought about that as I spent uh, five years there, and boy, I made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, I, I really coming out of coming out of grad school, I, I didn't know much. I mean, I know how to solve equations and I, and I knew how to do a bunch of certain things, but I really knew very little about business. And so I really learned in many ways at GE's expense, right? They continued my education for that five years. And I think if you listen to David in his comments, he really leveraged that very well. First, with an internship, he talked about the internship he had at GE and when he worked on manufacturing and he said, ah, now I know what my passion is. This is what I want to do. So he used he really leveraged his internship. And then because he performed well, he got GE to hire him. And then he talked GE into putting him into one of one of GE's formal training programs. Um, So. Here again, he's leveraging uh, that relationship with GE uh, to make himself smarter, to learn more things, uh, and to really be taught by one of the best manufacturing companies around. And then he, he took that and he said, hey, you know, I see a better way of doing what's going on here inside of GE. And he left GE and he got GE to be his first customer. So here again, I think this sort of path of uh, having your first job be working in another company, uh, even if it's a small entrepreneurial company, it doesn't need to be a big GE, right? It can be, or an IBM or whatever, one of the Fortune 500, because they all have great training programs. But you could also say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to go work in a small entrepreneurial company and I'm going to be employee number 10 or number 20 and sort of see how that environment is and see what it's like working in a small company like that and see what the issues are, and then leverage that and break out on your own at some point in time. I think that's a great takeaway for young people that are interested in becoming entrepreneurs is, yeah, there's plenty of history of Bill Gates's, you know, going at age, whatever he was, right, and and doing this. But I think it makes a lot more sense um, in a lot of ways, especially if you're in the U.S. and you're paying a lot of money for uh, an undergraduate education to leverage a job with a company that is well run regardless of size, regardless of industry, and add those tools to your entrepreneurial toolkit before you strike out on your own and take all the risks that entrepreneurs have to take. It's an interesting conclusion. It wasn't something he said directly, but I think all the pieces of his conversation indirectly point to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So, Mike, one of the other things he talked about was mentoring and sort of how he had a mentor that sort of helped him and encouraged him in certain things. What were your thoughts on that? Mentoring is something that I think is is really, really important for a number of ways to an organization. It's important, obviously, for new employees um, to gain knowledge, to gain a network. It's important, I think, for existing employees 
especially those that, are, that have been there a long time, to really feel, yes, I can give back. This is a way I can help the organization. It's a pro-social organizational citizenship behavior that breeds engagement uh, and positive feelings about the job that, yep, I have something to offer. Um, so I think that it's a really, a, a truly a win-win, but I think it's really hard to capture it. I think that there's so many times where it's forced. It's a mentorship program and people are matched with people that they maybe don't share a lot with, or they have a hard time getting to build some trust. So, you know, where is that line where, yeah, I'm going to be a, especially if you're a small company, I'm going to build some sort of uh, mentorship program. I'm going to create opportunities for people to to bond and to people to mentor. I'm going to reward people for being mentors. I'm going to encourage young people to find mentors and train them how to ask for help. You know, I think those are some things that I think all entrepreneurs should really take into account. And that is how to inject mentorship into a culture with the fact that mentorship isn't something that's difficult to force. It's just got to be a, an environment that's that's um, you plant the seeds, essentially water them and see what comes up. I don't know. What's been your experience on mentoring, uh, especially in, in small companies? I, I think you, you actually said a key word, which I think is the real driver in any mentoring relationship. And that's trust. Uh, because when you're mentoring, whether you're the mentor or or the mentee, uh, in either of those situations, you're sort of... Uh, uh, revealing your soul to another individual and and you're you're sharing with that person uh some of your thoughts that you probably normally don't share with a lot of other people so i think building that trust is a key and that trust comes with time uh, right and if you listen to how david talked about his mentor lorenzo he actually met him in church right so it wasn't a work mm -hmm. environment Right. And then they had a church trip where they went to Africa and he went. Right. And and that's how that relationship evolved into a mentoring relationship. And so it wasn't the it wasn't the boss's boss mentoring, you know, another younger employee. His mentorship actually started sort of outside of the work environment. Um, so I thought that was that was sort of interesting. And, and it, it, you really need to build and capture that trust. Back when I was running the incubator at RPI, every once in a while to get a phone call from somebody and they'd say, hey, I just retired and I'd like to mentor some companies or some CEOs. And, you know, can you set up some appointments for me so so, you know, we can figure out how to do that? And I'd say, sure. Um, but, you know. This is a big investment in time because it's not going to be a one hour sit down and then you're going to figure out how to do this. It's going to be a long process in building that trust because you're asking that person to basically open up their business to you. And you don't do that with strangers, at least certainly not in the predominant part of the culture we have in the United States. People are very reserved about those things and very protective for, for many good reasons. So I've seen it before, uh, and it's really important. And it's I, I don't think it's something that, as you said, you cannot script it. You can't you can have a program that takes down some barriers and gets people to think about it. But it's going to happen organically and naturally if it happens. 
I think those are great points, Bella. And I think that that's just something that every entrepreneur needs to do is how am I going to create a culture that fosters mentorship? How am I going to encourage people? And how am I going to uh, reward mentorship when it when it when it develops? Uh, and I think you're right. I think that trust component is really important. It's uh, easy to say, hard to actually build. Yeah, I agree. You know, there was another thing he talked about that I thought was interesting. and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, he talked about how uh, when he's going, he's, he was thinking about a big organizational change within the company. And he said he actually started working on it about a year before he rolled it out. And one of the early things he did was he figured out who the influencers were within his organization. And then he, he talked to them and he started getting their feedback and their input on his ideas uh, and then once he sort of had the influencers and the input from them and, and they sort of, you know, saw the same vision, then he rolled it out to the greater company because he knew many of the other employees look up to these influencers. And those influencers are really key in maintaining the culture and moving uh, the company in a different direction because change is always challenging. And these influencers will, will give other folks the confidence that, yes, this is the right thing to do. So what are your thoughts on that, Mike? It goes back to culture and it goes back. It's related to mentoring. It is these influencers who I think are critical people in any organization. Um, they're the ones sometimes with positional power. They have uh, an office uh, title in their name that people respect. But oftentimes they're not. They're people who have expertise, that have good interpersonal skills, um, that, again, have gone back to this idea of they've built the trust uh, of their colleagues and when they say something, people listen. They might not be the loudest people in the office. They might not um, even have the strongest opinions, but they're people who are viewed by their peers as uh, trusted and respected colleagues. And I think we've all been involved in things like office politics, and and I think we've all seen uh, the negative influences of things like gossip um, and backbiting. To me, when we talk about influencers, I can think of several that I've worked with that that really are the the thoughtful insightful leaders that that happen to maybe it's not telling people what to do maybe it's asking the right questions maybe it's pointing some inconsistencies out uh, maybe it's looking outside the organization having the ability to see outside and and bring in new ideas but i think he's right on in terms of being able to know who those people are and get those people on board with the change um, those are i think the people that you want to also be actively trying to mentor I think those are the people who you want to be setting the cultural norms in terms of the expectations of new employees. These, I think all these things fit together. And I think they're, again, they're reasons why, why Dave has been successful and why he's an interesting person. But, but getting back to the, the key issue, this idea of influencers, I think, is critical both for internal change and for developing new products and building new customers. And it's, it's all about protecting, understanding, identifying and protecting your human capital. Right. These people are your key assets. Sometimes these people lie outside your organization. Sometimes they're key suppliers, key customers, um, regulators. They're in the government, um, partners, strategic partners, things like that. So I think you also want to make sure that you're identifying influencers throughout. And, you know, we use this term now with social media, right? And they're people with lots of followers. But I think the the non-digital, the analog version, right, um, are the people who who work in our offices with us and and who work on on the factory floors, um, and who we eat lunch with and we have a coffee break with. Uh, and don't forget those. Those are just as important as the, the people on YouTube and Instagram with, with lots of followers. 
Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. Excellent, excellent points. So I thought the interview with David was really good. I really enjoyed uh, having it. Were there any other points that uh, that really struck you that you wanted to uh, bring up here in our, our discussion? Well, I think just reinforcing the, the road less traveled is sometimes interesting. There's lots of areas of competition that are underserved, that aren't glitzy and sexy. I think that's a key takeaway. I think the, the mentoring takeaway, I think the culture takeaway, the idea of maybe working for a company for a few years before you start out and start your business if you're young. To me, all these things point to just um, making really good decisions. And Dave just seems like a person that's made a, a whole lot of really good decisions in his career. He had a solid base to build on. He surrounded himself with really cool people. He recognized opportunities and he was kind of smart and sure-handed enough to to take advantage of those opportunities. So to me, that's a it's a great story of somebody who definitely left a you know, a solid career at a solid company with lots of job security and lots of, uh, you know, assured future and to, to take a risk and, and did it the right way. So uh, I think it's a great example for, for listeners in terms of, of finding a, a less traveled road and, and building a successful organization. Uh, very nice summary, Mike. Done, done like a true teacher. I felt like I was at the end of class and you just wrapped things up really nicely. Uh, my students have already been picking up their stuff and leaving five minutes before the class is going to end. So, you know, you're still there, which I appreciate, Bill. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you. Thank you. So that was a great, great summary. So, folks, I hope you enjoyed this podcast and this interview with David DeSalt of P1 Industries. And always, if you like what you hear, please let us know uh, and let your friends know and give us a nice review on iTunes. That'll help drive more traffic uh, to the podcast. If you have comments or suggestions, please feel free to send us an email uh, and share those with Mike and I. And we can be reached at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, see you later. Bye-bye.